do you imagine when I say the word doctor? I'm guessing you aren't imagining a surgeon who can't hear, a psychiatrist who can't see. It probably isn't an emergency physician in a wheelchair or a doctor with a speech impairment. We tend to think of doctors as having two working hands, clear speech, keen eyesight and steady feet. In Australia, these are actually inherent requirements. You probably can't get into medical school without them. But not every doctor fits that description. Hello and welcome back to The Medical Republic, a podcast for curious GPs. My name's Felicity Nelson. And I'm Francine Crimmins. Today we're grappling with a very controversial issue. We're taking a look into the difficult topic of whether students with disabilities should be given the opportunity to study medicine in Australia. And it seems despite anti-discrimination laws, it's actually pretty tricky to get into med school, especially in Australia, if you've got a significant disability. So I've spoken to a few students who feel like they're being discriminated against on the basis of disability. These students have conditions like cerebral palsy, learning difficulties, anxiety, speech impairments, ADHD, those kinds of conditions. Yeah, and you were saying to me earlier that there are a few accommodations for some of these students. Uh, So some of them can get things like extra time in the GAMSAT exam. Uh, But at the same time, for some of these students, it just isn't enough. And some of them are demanding alternative methods uh, to help them get into medicine. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's true. Um, But the main problem is actually the inherent requirements laid down by the medical deans Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, so I actually had a bit of a read of that online. It says that there's certain physical requirements of the degree that students have to fulfill. And it also says that medical students have to be able to complete the course full time, which seems very strict considering that we know once people are admitted into the degree that for varying reasons, they can actually complete subjects on more of a part-time schedule. Yeah, it seems like the universities can be quite flexible, but they're not in this document. Um, So they also say that all medical students upon graduation should be able to do CPR. Um, And they also say odd things like they have to have one fully functioning arm. Um, They have to be able to hear the human voice at one metre without a hearing aid. And another thing I noticed was the ability to read fine print. And I also know that uh, one of the requirements is that you have to be able to read a monitor from across a hospital bed, Uh, which I guess in some of these things, they do appear to be skills for a well-rounded doctor as we know it. But But it's also kind of restrictive, right? Yeah. Um, So personally, I wouldn't mind having a doctor who, you know, if you had a heart attack and you fell down in the street, they could just instruct a bystander on how to do CPR. Yeah. And I guess it's also that question of if you're seeing a psychiatrist, what's the chance that they need to be able to perform CPR on a patient? And equally, uh, does a GP even need to be able to read fine print? How much is that inherent in their role? I know, so it makes sense if you're a pharmacist because you have to read those tiny little bottles. But for a GP, maybe it's not so important. The document that we were referring to was also labelled as potentially discriminatory by the Australian Medical Association. But it's completely legal as far as I can tell. So I I went and had a look at the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992 because, you know, I have not got a life (laughs) lots of time on your hands and it says that you're allowed to lay down inherent requirements for things like employment and I imagine it applies to education as well Um, so that means it's it's like a you're slapping a sign on the door saying don't even bother applying if you don't meet these requirements kind of makes sense but at the same time it's not being terribly flexible for anyone who 
you know, might have an alternative way of meeting those requirements that's, uh, yeah, just a little bit different from your average student. Yeah, in the university's defence, though, it's not like there are no students uh, with disabilities in medicine at all. Well, so one med school told me that they had about 10% of their cohort who were registered with accessibility services. Um, Other universities said it was about 4%. Some of them wouldn't give me numbers um, because they, you know, there was a confidentiality problem, which makes sense. Um, But these students usually have invisible or temporary disabilities, things like injuries, carpal tunnel syndrome, anxiety, depression, that kind of thing. So... Um, they might be quite significant, but they not, might not be noticeable from the outside. I can also imagine doctors have a very long career, and it's highly likely that some doctors would have been registered for many years and then they'll actually acquire a disability. So the thing that comes to mind is there's actually a practicing doctor on the Gold Coast who's working in ED, and he's in a wheelchair. So there's a couple of other doctors as well, um, and they've banded together to form an advocacy group called uh, Doctors with Disabilities Australia. Um, So yeah, there are quite a few of them out there, even if we haven't all come across them. Yeah, so in Australia, it can actually be quite hard to find these success stories of people with a disability who have gone on to study medicine. But when we look to the US, there's plenty of physicians with disabilities who have been practicing for many years. Some of them actually are quite popular. And it's quite refreshing when you talk to people in the US about this issue. Some of them are quite progressive and open-minded. So we wanted to share some of our conversations we've been having. So first up, we're going to introduce you to a US doctor who's already a leading light in this area. Dr. Thomas Strax was diagnosed with cerebral palsy in the 1940s as a child. It was a different time back then, before the disability rights movement really took off. He faced a steep uphill battle just to live a normal life. But, beating all the odds, he managed to get into medical school in the 60s. Dr Tom Strax is now a rehabilitation physician based in New Jersey. I spoke with Dr Strax by phone this week. At first it was a little hard to hear him because of his speech impediment, but he repeated things when I got lost and I got used to his voice over the hour or so that we spoke. Um, I think it's quite important to hear his words in his own voice because it gives you an idea of the kind of communication challenges that can and already have been overcome by a distinguished U.S. physician. I applied to medical school like everybody else, numerous schools. It was interesting that Einstein did reject me almost immediately. I wanted to go to NYU School of Medicine. That was my first choice. Dr. Strax was just like every other hopeful school leaver. He knew he wanted to do medicine, but lots of universities just rejected his application right away without giving it a proper look. And even when he got his application considered by the faculty at NYU, it wasn't a done deal by any means. So I understand there was a, a real battle about whether I should be admitted to the class or not, and the executive faculty eventually decided that they would give me a slot in my class. So Dr. Strauss was going to medical school after all. He also spoke a bit about his family's influence at this point. He, he came from a line of famous physicians, so they managed to pull a few strings to get him in. That's a big deal. That year, there were 6,000 applicants for 111 places. So I got one of them. And it worked out. And what was um, the experience like at medical school? 
actually was quite good. <laughs> there were a couple of things that people had to figure out how to do it, and it was always some equipment that would make me, allow me to do what everybody else did. Some examples of my accommodations, like allowed me to take exam always. In residency, I got to do everything. And I was able to do it. Dr. Strax was able to do everything that the other students did, despite his speech and mobility issues. This included delivering 14 babies. He also learned to use tools such as the Kelly clamp to help with dissections and the Vorkutena to draw blood using only one hand. So in Australia at the moment, uh, there's a bit of questioning around whether people with disabilities can actually be doctors. So we're kind of at the stage of the conversation that you were at when you were at medical school, so a very long time ago, um, and it hasn't really evolved much here. Um, so there's a lot of people who are questioning whether someone with cerebral palsy could actually be a doctor. So the reason I'm talking to you is, is because you had a whole career as a doctor, so you kind of demonstrate that it is possible. <laughs> um, so I'm Well, now it's possible. I said to you, I'm president to National Academy. I mean, the Berkeley County Physical Medicine Rehabilitation is 10,000 buildings right now. The Berkeley Congress is about 2,500 to 3,000. He was the president of two national academies, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine and the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, which has 10,000 residents on rotation right now. The most important thing, by the way, in being able to make the diagnosis. And my classmates and my residents have taught are so sort of best because it's the way you approach the issue and you're able to solve the problem. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. The most important thing for a doctor is first being able to figure out what's wrong with them and then also taking the extra step and treating them successfully. Dr. Strauss told me a few stories where he was able to do a diagnosis that no one else was able to do. So one time, this woman uh, came into hospital and was diagnosed with a condition that affects the peripheral nerves. But Dr. Strauss realized there was something seriously wrong with that diagnosis. This lady had tremendous deal of myelination in three days. When I finished the study, I picked up the phone, I called her attendee, I said, look, first of all, you need to come in now because this lady needs to be on a ventilator tonight. Second, she does have a neurological disease, but it's like the These numbers are much too slow to occur on the first day. And she needs a workup to find out why, including heavy bales of poison. It turned out she would be poisoned by her husband. Wow. And here's how I wrapped up the interview. So in Australia in 2019, um, 
you probably would not have got into medical school because of some of the entry requirements that we have here. So we've got an exam that's written, um, we have an interview, and then there are these inherent requirements which essentially state that medical students have to be able to basically be able-bodied, so they have to be able to perform CPR and study full-time and um, do a whole heap of procedures and physical examinations, um, which would preclude some people with uh, various disabilities. Um, do you think Australia might be missing out on some great doctors? Let me answer it first by asking you a question. Mm -hmm. If you had a heart attack in the middle of the street and you had an opportunity to be saved, would you rather the male student be nothing about what they were doing in CPR as opposed to letting somebody who was physically challenged by an MD degree and could tell people exactly what to do? Not everybody has to be able to do everything perfectly to be a good doc. They need to know what they all know, and they also need to know how to get the information they need to know. And now we're going to dive a little deeper into the wave of activism happening right now in the US around doctors with disabilities. We've got Dr. Lisa Meeks from the University of Michigan with us. Dr. Meeks is a psychologist who started the hashtag Docs with Disabilities Twitter campaign last year. Hello. Oh, hello. It's Felicity here. Hi, this is Lisa. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How's the weather there? Uh, it's freezing. <laughs> it's actually really bad. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It seems like the conversation with doctors with disabilities is much more progressive in the US than Australia. Last year, the Association of Medical Colleges released a report focusing on the day-to-day -day challenges that medical students with disabilities face. This was the fourth report on the topic of disability in medical education since 1993. Uh, I understand you co-authored that report and you also launched a Twitter campaign, hashtag Docs with Disabilities. It sounds like you had a pretty busy 2018. Can you tell us a little bit about those two initiatives? Over the course of three months, my co-PI, Mira Jane, who is now at the University of Auckland, and myself, along with a team of qualitative researchers, went about interviewing students, residents, and physicians with disabilities to try to capture a bigger picture of what was happening nationally. And as you know, you read in the report, there were significant barriers that individuals were facing that were somewhat surprising and, of course, somewhat not surprising. So we analyzed this data and came up with themes that kind of really summarize the challenges that are still present in U.S. medical schools. At the same time, we did a thematic analysis of the support. What, what made an institution or a, a student, actually, what made a student more likely to disclose? What made a student or a resident or a physician more likely to achieve success? 
and feel comforted and accepted with their disability in a, in a specific space. We had noticed quite a bit of variability in the numbers. So we would have a lot of schools that did not report having any students with disabilities, and then we had schools that were reporting upwards of 20 to 25 percent of their students having disclosed disabilities. What kinds of disabilities do the students have? So there are five categories of disability. Um, uh, there's psychological disabilities, uh, learning disabilities, chronic health disabilities, physical disabilities, which would include mobility, and then sensory, which would be low vision, deaf or hard of hearing. And in medical schools across the U.S., there are medical students that cut across every single category. Um, at last count, ADHD, so Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, was the largest group of students that had disclosed disabilities in allopathic medical schools. I also think that given the advances in assistive technology, and I don't just mean for students with learning disabilities, I think that for students with chronic health issues who have perhaps previously not been able to attend medical school because just the physicality of medical school was, was difficult to navigate with, with their chronic health issues, and it may have been that, um, you know, they, they have a lot of fatigue or they have a lot of joint pain or things of that nature. I think we'll see those numbers increasing too because we have the technology now to mitigate a lot of the uh, repetitive motions to be able to dictate a, a good number of the pieces of information that need to be captured. We also have adaptive equipment so that students that can't use a traditional piece of equipment like a otoscope um, can now use an adaptive piece of equipment that allows them to have a larger grip and doesn't put as much pressure on their joints as an example. I felt like there was a richness to the data that we had captured as interviewers that didn't translate completely in the report. Because we reported everything in aggregate and in themes, there was a, a personal side to the stories that were a little bit lost in that aggregate reporting. Um, I wound up talking to another family physician, Pam Liao, from the University of Toronto. And we had talked about doing some work together, some research together, and in one of our conversations, I had proposed that one of my big concerns about the stigma of doctors with disabilities was that people just weren't aware that they even existed. And so Pam and I were talking one day and said, well, what about a hashtag? And uh, what kind of stories came out of the Twitter campaign? Oh, my goodness. I can tell you that we have highlighted uh, individuals across all categories. So we've, we've highlighted individuals with ADHD, um, with depression. We've highlighted individuals who are deaf. We've highlighted several individuals who are wheelchair users. 
Um, we have highlighted individuals who have chronic health issues that run the gamut. There, there doesn't seem to be one particular disability that's drawn to the campaign, which is one of the beautiful things about the campaign is that it is truly capturing um, a really wide net of individuals. But, and some people will talk about their disability in kind of the comments that they give us to include, but others won't, and they'll just talk about the experience of being a person with a disability. Um, and how do you make sure that the admission process to medical school is inclusive of people with disabilities? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, I actually sit on the Executive Admissions Committee at Michigan, and we have a different process than a lot of medical schools. So we'll review an applicant and look at um, all of the things that they've done very holistically, all the things that they have accomplished in their life, um, obviously their grades, their, their MCATs. Um, we also encourage students with disabilities to apply to, to school if they meet our other criteria. We certainly welcome applications from individuals with disabilities, and we look at disability really as a dimension of diversity and a lived experience that we know um, will be beneficial to not only the patient population at Michigan, but will be beneficial to the peer group and to the faculty um, and clinical faculty that work with the, work with students. So, so we really see it as a plus. There is something I'd like to to tell you about. Sure, sure. Um, we it's not public knowledge yet. It hasn't been announced yet, um, but it will be announced in the next month. Um, the University of Michigan is hosting the first ever World Congress on Disability in Medicine. Oh, okay. And we're going to be inviting people from Australia, New Zealand, Italy. We have I have contacts all over the world who are also doing work in this space. And so Michigan is committed to making sure that um, there's some synergy around the work and that um, as much progress that is being made here, um, there's equal progress being made in the UK and what can we learn from the UK and what can they learn from the US type of thing. So we're that's coming in October 2020, which is very, very exciting. How can we change our attitude and our thinking so that we're more open-minded in Australia? So I would say that, you know, I think it's the same things that we go through here, which is it's always been that way, so it will always be that way. And we see physicians as superhuman. You know, they, they can have no flaws and no mistakes because they are the people that run in and save the patient all day. But what we're seeing more and more is that with or without disability, everybody is human. And that people with disability can at times have more empathy and compassion and connection with their patient because of that lived experience. I think that the exercises that I've gone through with the schools that I would say are more progressive in the U.S. have gone through a real evaluation of what does it mean to be a doctor 
and they've been challenged on some of these, what we would call technical standards, to say, do you really have to lift 50 pounds to be a doctor? You know, when we look at all of the physicians, I think you would be hard-pressed to argue that, you know, a 65-year-old physician who has been a, a master surgeon his entire life and is still practicing and doing really well, but can't lift 50 pounds of dead weight, it's still quite competent to be a physician, but might not meet a technical standard that is set at, for some arbitrary reason at a, at a medical school. Um, we see this a lot, too, with physicians who have become disabled, so who have an acquired disability that occurs after they've trained. So they're already physicians, they acquire a disability, and they continue to practice. Um, you know, the human mind and body is very, very adaptive, and they have found a way to continue to practice medicine. And if you interview many of them, and I know you're going to interview some people, I think many of them have found it more rewarding and that they connect more with their patients. Um, so I think it's really telling the stories. I think it's understanding that it is happening, and it's happening quite successfully in other places. And then hopefully, my hope at Michigan is to bring empirical data to the table that shows the positive impact that a physician with a disability has on the care of patients. What it means to be a doctor is very different, I think, in the 21st century than it was you know, even a, a few decades ago. Um, I think it's one of those things where you you have to be exposed to it before you can truly understand. And unfortunately, I've, I have heard about the struggles in Australia from multiple parties. You know, I think that... It, there are, and this is not something that's just happening in the U.S. I could connect you with people in the U.K. and people in India and people in Italy. And um, there is a movement, and it's global in nature. And it's going to get harder and harder for schools to deny qualified applicants that have a disability when accommodations are being um, de developed, used, and and are effective in reducing barriers for for physicians all over the world. Absolutely, what we need to hear. <laughs> um, so, thank you so much for your time. That was uh, just so many brilliant things that I, I wish I I could um, could have put in my written feature. But I'm doing this podcast as kind of like a extra bit so that. Um, people who haven't, you know, got time to read the feature can, can hear a sort of fresh perspective mm -hmm. from somewhere else. <laughs> Thank you. All right, cool. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Medical Republic podcast. Next week, we're looking at the mass outbreak of tidying up inspired by the Marie Kondo Netflix series and some of the severe clinical manifestations that clinging on to possessions can bring.